Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm John McEnroe, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Hi, my name is Grigor Dimitrov, and you're listening to Tennis Podcast. Hi, I'm Mats Villander, and you are listening to the Tennis Podcast. Well, hello, and welcome to the Tennis Podcast with me, Catherine Whitaker, tennis broadcaster, and with another tennis broadcaster, David Law. David, thank you very much for joining me. Oh, you're very welcome. I mean, we call ourselves tennis broadcasters. That's kind of code for sit, watch tennis, talk lots, and call it work. Brilliant. And then pinch ourselves afterwards, yes. Neither of us have been anywhere glamorous this week, for once. We've both been our res- in our respective homes. I'll be off somewhere plenty glamorous next week, though, so no need to worry about that. So many talking points, though, today. First of all, uh, your first experience of Monte Carlo, what did you think? I mean, there are, there are barely words for what I think. Certainly the location. I mean, I'd seen it on the TV, obviously. Most people listening to this will have seen it on the TV, and yet it's still... So I knew what to expect, and yet it's still took my breath away I mean it's an extraordinary place I think I was probably the poorest person in about an 80 mile (laughs) radius by quite some distance I mean the the extraordinary wealth and style and extravagance on display is really quite something and you used to live there David tell me about what it's like to actually live in Monte Carlo because I was you know I can see what all the you know fabulously wealthy people do they go to the Hotel de Paris and they go to the casino and they flash flash their hundred euro notes but what does like an average person do on a Tuesday there? (laughs) Well first of all I should say that I, I didn't used to get a salary into my account they just sort of directed it immediately to the landlord where I was staying Uh, and then I gave some more money Uh, but that's what life was like for me when in my four years of living in Monte Carlo but I do remember I I was in a bit of a fitness kick unlike today where I am the the disgraceful physical specimen you see before you at the moment uh, in my 40s back in my 20s when I uh, first uh, lived in Monte Carlo and worked for the ATP um, I do remember going a run or two at a weekend uh, and I would run around Casino Square sweating all over the Ferraris <laughs> and uh, you should have seen the disdain that people looked at me with I mean really you know there were there were sort of bellboys at the front of um, the, 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 the glamorous locations there looking at me with just disgust just get away it's very hilly around there David to go running isn't it yeah, it is. I, I always went downhill, <laughs> but uh, no, it, it was a, it was an extraordinary place to to spend a few years living. I mean, totally out of my comfort zone, but a great experience. I would say, not really a place to live full time or long term. I mean, there were there was a, a big expat community, and you would see all sorts of famous people just 
wandering around with their shopping, you know, with their, with their grocery shopping and so forth. But, yeah, great place for a tennis tournament, though. I mean, an amazing experience to when they start, a, bit, a little bit like Queen's when they start the tournament build for the Aegon Championships, you know, six weeks out, they start putting up the, the stands. Same feel at the Monte Carlo Country Club, turning this year-round tennis club into an international tennis venue. Brilliant. Yeah, they do it very successfully. I certainly would agree that I'd put it in the category of fabulous to visit, perhaps not a destination to live in. But that's enough for David and Catherine's travel guide for this week. Why don't we start off by talking about Rafael Nadal? Not that we didn't talk at length about Rafael Nadal, or I didn't talk at length about Rafael Nadal with Robbie Koenig on last week's podcast, but there have been developments, haven't there, in Barcelona this week. Rafa beat Nicolas Almagro. That was a very good result. That could have been uh, a sticky wicket for him but then lost in three sets to Fabio Fognini. Now, my impressions after Monte Carlo were he's not there yet. He's nowhere near there, but there are signs that he's getting there, and I saw it as a big step forward, and I thought it's now a race against time until the French Open. He's on the way, he's on the road. It's just a question of whether he's got enough matches between now and Paris to play himself into form. However, I saw that as quite a big step back what happened against Fognini. How do you see it, David? Well, just before we go any further, let's just have a pronunciation uh, consensus on Fabio Fognini or Fognini. There's no G in there, is there? I sort of say like a very soft G, like Fognini, Fognini. Okay, we'll we'll go with that. Yeah, I can't say that. So Fognini uh, is a difficult player at the best of times. We know that from the way he has performed over the years. We saw it against Andy Murray uh, in Naples just over a year ago, and that really struck me, the way he played Murray, because I've always been of the opinion when Andy Murray plays Davis Cup and needs to win, Andy Murray wins. And he needed to win that, and he he couldn't do it. He gave everything he got. He was, yes, in in front of a baying crowd, but Fanini, when when he's on like that, when he decides, right, I'm up for this now, when he realises that... that it's it's happening for him. He he's an awesome player, and I'm not that surprised that he's the sort of player that could beat Nadal. I think he's also the sort of player player that could beat anybody. I think Djokovic is a nightmare for him just because of that relentless depth of hitting, and he kind of s- snubs him out before he even gets going. Uh, I think I saw them play maybe at the Australian Open a year or so ago, and and it was a very one-sided match, but. The big question is, is this a crisis? And and I think the question we posed at Tennis Podcast on Twitter is, when does a crisis become a crisis? Now, I think it would be very, very easy to, to look at the evidence at the moment and think, well, hold on. Nadal hasn't been winning big titles for such a long time now. He hasn't been winning big matches for such a long time now. He's come onto the clay where we've all been waiting for him to show what he's made of and to bring out the Superman from within and he's losing in routine fashion in the words of Robbie Koenig I think very fairly put last week on the tennis podcast to Novak Djokovic 6-3-6-3 and then he's going and he's losing in the second round effectively his second match in Barcelona a tournament that he'd won eight times before that is not Rafael Nadal vintage Nadal but then I'd look at 12 months ago and I think people tend to forget he lost to David Ferrer in Monte Carlo 
He lost to Nicolas Almagro in Barcelona in the quarterfinal stages. He lost to Novak Djokovic uh, in Rome. He was a different man when he got to Roland Garros, wasn't he? And that's the, the one remaining unknown, in my view, is does that still count? When we get there, does he still undergo that transformation that we've seen year after year after year? The guy's lost one match in 10 years. You can't rule that out. So what we're saying is, whereas up until now we've been saying, you know, when he was experiencing those bad results on the hard courts, we were saying let's reserve judgment until he's on the clay. Now we're deferring judgment again until he's at Roland Garros. Let me just run you through quickly through the vast spectrum of opinion we received on this subject on Twitter. As David said, we put out the discussion topic, when does a crisis become a crisis? And opinions ranged from Christian Berg at Christian Berg saying, I'm pretty sure this counts as a full-blown DEFCON 1 crisis. Unequivocal there from Christian. And Mark Walton added, I'd have Rafa never to win another slam now at odds on. Whereas Special Smiley said, this isn't it. If Rafa played well and lost, then yes. This was an inexplicable, lacklustre, error-ridden play. Which is an interesting point, isn't it? If we'd seen Rafa play his absolute best against Fognini and still lose, would that be a different thing to seeing Rafa not produce his best? As, as I think was the case against Fognini and lose. But isn't the point... I'm sort of I'm countering my own points here. Yeah, I don't need you, David. I can do this podcast all on my own. Isn't kind of the point? We don't know what Rafa's best is on clay now, do we? We don't know yet. And whether he can continually bring it out. I think that's the big question. Is is that still there? I mean, you know how we've we've often said Roger Federer's best tennis is the best tennis, but it doesn't last for very long anymore compared to maybe 2006 and seven. I don't know, I don't think any of us know whether it's still within Rafa Nadal to produce that level of tennis. I, I still think, I have this deep belief that when we get to Rangaros, if the sun's shining, it, it'll be there for all to see once more. That's what I'm hanging on to. That's what I've been banging on about for weeks on and about, why he's still the favourite for that title, in my eyes, even if the bookies say he's not. But there's plenty of reason to doubt that. Plenty of reason. I mean, you could make a really compelling argument for the fact that Rafa Nadal is just not the same player anymore and never will be. I don't think he is. I, I think he is still the same. I think he's just struggling at the moment. And everybody struggles. It's going to come again. So you think it's all about the weather forecast, David? It's part of it. It's part of it. You can't ignore the weather. That he play- Don't you look at me like that, Catherine Whittaker. It's part of it. This guy, when he gets out at Roland Garros, if the sun's shining, he's got the sun on his back and it's that high bouncing court and it's got those massive uh, outskirts of the court where he can create those ridiculous angles and he can run all the way around the ball and he can put it halfway up the sideline and bounce it off into the spectators. You try and get that back. Are you saying Djokovic likes the sun slightly less? Is he a more vampiric player? (laughs) Uh, I think that Djokovic... Well, we've seen it. They've played each other. in In the last four years, they've played each other three times. In fact, is it the last three years they've played each other? Nadal has won every single one of them. You can't argue with that evidence. And last year, when the weather was good, Nadal was nigh on unbeatable. 
Well, there are people that are arguing with that evidence, David, and they're on Twitter. I'll just give you a few more opinions. Jim B at James A Boyle 71 says, this will be the year Nadal loses his grip, but I think it might not be to Djokovic. I think Murray, Monfils or Fognini could win. I have to say, I wouldn't want my, as Robbie Koenig puts it, hard-earned money resting on Fognini winning seven consecutive matches. But there we go. Uh, Abigail Johnson says, genuinely more sure than ever this year. However he's playing, he always finds a way to win there, there being Roland Garros. Seen it again and again. And uh, Aki Odell says he has won it nine times. He is the favourite. End of. So, I mean, you can make such a compelling argument either way, can't you? I mean, it's, it's impossible to pick. The, the time draws ever closer that we will have to pick, but now is not that time. <laughs> I, I, I would say that within him must be probably more doubts than in terms of form that he can ever remember having on clay. Fitness is a different one. He's had those knee injuries, but I still think he's such a champion. You're not talking about a guy who's just won one or two. You're talking about a guy who's won nine. You can't forget about that. And Djokovic has won zero. So he doesn't know what that's like yet. He can, he can do it, Djokovic, as well. I mean, it, 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 it's so easy to make a case either way. Having said all of that, get them both there. Let's see if they actually meet yet. Let's see what happens because there are other players out there. Look at Kei Nishikori in Barcelona last week. Fantastic. He's got the sort of ball striking ability that could just really upset things here. Okay, well, let's talk about Kanish Kori. He has defended his Barcelona Open title. He wasn't somebody that I talked about with Robbie Koenig last week simply because he wasn't there in Monte Carlo. But Robbie did add on Twitter to us that he wanted to give an honourable mention to Nishikori because though he wasn't in Monte Carlo, he does see him as somebody that can upset the apple cart. We're all about talking about it's Nadal versus Djokovic for the French. Well, what if one of them gets upset before they get the chance to meet one another? Kane Ishikori, how strong is the challenge that he could potentially mount in Paris, do you think? Well, just before we answer that, what do you think? What do you think about Nadal? Is it, if you lost confidence in Rafael Nadal at the French Open, do you think he's going to win it? He's still my favourite, I have to say. I, th- I mean, it's 51-49, if not less. I agree. I don't disagree with the bookies pitting Novak Djokovic as favourite at the moment. But I, I think there's an there's a unquantifiable something that has to go in Rafael Nadal's favour. I also think it's favour. I also think it's going to be different over five sets. And, uh, I mean, there's no doubt he seems less confident to me. That, that's the biggest question mark. He's very philosophical in press conferences at the moment. I mean, he's saying some really interesting lines, some really interesting, insightful things about his mindset. Not that he never has done in the past, but I do think he's being more reflective than ever before. And um, whether that's a good thing or not, I don't know. But I certainly think his confidence isn't where it needs to be. If he can just get a couple of really tight victories under his belt, not necessarily against Djokovic. I mean, obviously, if he could beat Djokovic ahead of the French... That would be fantastic for his confidence. But if he could get a win over somebody like Nishikori in Madrid or in Rome ahead of the French, I think that would do wonders for his confidence. So just by a a whisker, Rafa is still my favourite. Happy? Have I sufficiently put my neck on the line for your liking? Yes. So Kei Nishikori. 
Uh, he was very impressive in Barcelona last week. However, he didn't have to play a Nadal. He didn't have to play a Djokovic. He, we haven't seen him tested in that way. However, he's world number four. Um, and he looks so comfortable on the clay, doesn't he? How, I put it to you again, David, how serious is the challenge that he can mount? The thing with Kane Shikuri is, whereas I have total confidence that Novak Djokovic and Roger Federer and to probably a slightly lesser degree Nadal will physically come through this season and turn up at the French Open in pristine condition. I have less confidence that Kane Ishikori will because he has such a history of injury. And he could play brilliantly between now and the French Open and turn up half fit just because his, his body has failed him in the past. But he was half fit in New York last year. He, he wasn't sure if he was going to play New York last year and he reached the final. Yeah, absolutely. And if that isn't ultimately an issue, because I think what, what has happened is since he started working with Michael Chang, I think he stopped worrying about niggles, things that were bothering him in the past, which he might either play 75% level or just not play at all because he thinks, well, what's the point? Chang, I think, has got him to just fight through all that. And... Um, I remember Pete Sampras saying a few years ago, interviewed him when Djokovic was first coming along. And he said, the thing with Novak Djokovic, he's, he's the one player out there who on a hard court can stand toe-to-toe with Roger Federer and do all the same kind of things. Okay, maybe not with the same elan and the same uh, guile and extravagance. Did you just say elan? I did. It's a good word, isn't it? It's fantastic. I've never heard you say it before, but there we are. I actually heard it on the radio this morning. I thought, I'm using that today. I don't know what it means, but I'm definitely using that. I much prefer the, the, uh, the lines coming out of the, the two-year-old little girl that has just toddled up here in the, uh, the Putney Exchange shopping centre where we sit recording the tennis podcast. She can be a guest on our show anytime she likes. I think it should be renamed the Tennis Podcast Putney Exchange shopping centre, given how regularly we broadcast from here. Yeah, probably. Um, and uh, yeah, Pete Sampras was pointing that out. And I feel as though the same kind of thing applies to Nishikori. When you see anybody else going toe-to-toe with guys like Federer or Djokovic, they don't seem to have much chance because it's just like a ping-pong match. There's just two blokes standing on the baseline hitting these half-folly ground strokes for winners and they just bully everybody else. Nishikori can do it too. He can stand there with them trade depth for depth angle for angle the cleanliness of the hitting is just a delight to to behold and he's Agassi like is Nishikuri the way he strikes the ball for me I don't understand the technicals I'm sure if we we discussed it with Brad Gilbert he might say well you don't know what you're talking about because you don't understand the technical elements and he'd be right but in terms of what it looks like when you're watching them that's the feel to the construction of the rallies and the, and the way he's just dismissing balls from his baseline. So the depth that Djokovic hits against Nishikuri, it doesn't have quite the same impact. So I'd love to see Nishikuri fully fit, fully firing at the French Open because I do think he could, he could upset somebody. And crucially, it, it, well, depending on what happens between now and Paris, there's a very strong chance that he'll be seeded in the top four, which is quite crucial, isn't it? I mean, it looks like Rafa likely will be seeded outside the top four, which means he could realistically meet Novak Djokovic, Roger Federer or Kei Nishikori in the quarterfinals 
um, which may be exactly what he needs. He may need tests early on, but it could be quite significant, that seeding, I think, going into Paris, couldn't it? I, I think it could. Um, I, I think if Nadal is seeded outside that top four and faces Djokovic in the quarters, that is the most vulnerable he will possibly be against Djokovic. I think if he gets to the final and they played each other in the final, I'd still back Nadal unless there's something different to what we're seeing right now. Even though he's got dismantled by Djokovic in Monte Carlo, I still come back to the fact that if Nadal's got six matches in his legs on that court, he's going to be unbeatable. Just one other quick comment. I don't disagree with what you just said, by the way. Actually, I... I absolutely emphatically agree that the earlier he meets Djokovic, the more vulnerable he will be. But there's, as we say, there's a very good chance that they won't meet. However, just one quick thing to say is, as much as he is excellent at pretending it doesn't bother him and doesn't get to him, because he gets asked about it a fair bit, Novak Djokovic doesn't like the crowd being against him, I don't think. Or certainly not the crowd being emphatically against him. And they will be in Paris if he faces Nadal, won't they? You don't think so? No. I don't don't think... If you look at the last two or three years when they've played each each other, I think the French crowd are not that warm towards Nadal, to be honest with you. Um, They're not that warm towards anybody, frankly, are they? Well, I don't know. they're, They're very warm towards Roger Federer. They love the home players and they absolutely revere and adore Roger Federer. I would say above all other players. I think that they would cheer for Roger Federer against French players. Okay, but name me a place where that isn't the case. No, but I think it's even more extreme there. And, and I, I mean, look, I've never been there. So let's, uh, we should add that. I've always been working at Queen's uh, in, the, in the lead up to that event. So I've never actually sampled it firsthand, but I've watched probably thousands of matches from the French Open over the years because I love watching it. It's an absolutely wonderful event. And I just watch, I'll, I'll have it on in the background just morning until night while working, honestly. Um, but, you know, it's, um, it seems to me that anywhere else you go in the world, Nadal and Federer more or less divide the support. I don't feel like that's the same thing at Roland Garros. I think, I think the French crowds have, have tired a little bit of the same winner every year I think they want new winners and it seems to me that there's a, an element of sympathy and, uh, and so forth for Djokovic, I think that they appreciate Djokovic more than they do other, more than other crowds necessarily do when he faces Nadal, that's how it seems to me from the outside so I, would, I wouldn't think that I would think that Djokovic would feel very much at home there, I think the other crowd that absolutely loves Djokovic is the Italian crowd in Rome, I think that they've really taken him to their hearts as well. Well, he speaks Italian. I think that helps a lot. But, I mean, that's a very... I'm, I'm very interested to hear you say that because certainly the, the crowd was not on Djokovic's side in Monte Carlo. And actually, there was a, a slightly indelicately phrased question uh, from an unnamed journalist in, uh, following the final of Monte Carlo, um, which was... I'm paraphrasing here, but it was... Thomas Burditch doesn't generally have that much crowd support and yet he was he was the favoured by the crowd in the final today. Does that bother you? That was how it was. But I mean, it was somebody speaking a second language, so it was not meant to sound as indelicate as it did. And, and Djokovic dealt with it with a lot of grace. He's, he said, he's, as I say, he's very good at pretending it doesn't bother him. 
but I just feel it does. Well, of course, of course it probably does. It's an impossible position for him to be in, isn't it? Both as a player on the court. I mean, I remember, <laughs> I remember watching the final. I think he played against Federer uh, a few weeks ago in Indian Wells. And there was a moment where the crowd are just going ecstatic when Djokovic makes this error. And I remember, I think I put out on Twitter at the time, if I was Djokovic, I'd be so tempted to just bleep, bleep, bleep everybody. I'd be tempted to just swear my head off a lot of them. Because, you know, it must be hard. How do you cope with tens of thousands of people cheering your mistakes I would go bonkers absolutely ballistic I'm not having it I would hate it but I mean it's it's part of what he has to deal with um, so yes I think it does bother him the other thing is how do you answer that question without sounding as though you're being petty or as though you're being thin-skinned it, and then if you pretend it doesn't bother you, you you may be regarded as insincere it's you're in a no-win situation there in many ways, although it's a legitimate question. I think it's a perfectly fair question. I think the truth is you have to be incredibly mentally strong to deal with that because he wants to be loved. He wants, he's not like Lendl. Lendl didn't care. He didn't care at all. Boo me all you like. Louder you boo, the better I'll play. But Djokovic, I think, wants to be loved, and we've seen his reaction in that, uh, that final the other week where he snatched his towel off the ball, kid, and, 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 and I mean, he was good enough to, to put out an apology after that, which I think was, was probably quite sensible. Um, but it's, it's also not surprising, is it? There's, a, there's, a, there's a, an animalistic warrior inside of him that wants to win and, and, and also a soul that wants to be loved. I agree, and I think that's absolutely fine to want to be loved. I just, there's a part, and I agree with you, it's no win. I, I know that if he was saying, yeah, God, I desperately want to be loved, I, you know, that would probably sound a bit distasteful as well. But there's a part of me that just wishes he'd go, yeah, it really annoys me, you know, what have I done wrong? You know, why don't I deserve, you know, a bit more credit? For this why well, what am I doing wrong but the answer is nothing well what good would that do I mean if you, let's say he did that what good would that do it nothing but it's not necessarily a strategic move is it it's just honesty yeah but I think to some degree I'm not sure you're always honest about things like that with yourself even do you do you sometimes try to you know convince yourself that you're not bothered because then you'll genuinely believe you're not bothered very possible david we're getting a bit um existential here aren't we so let's move on to the ladies in fact we've been very improper here we should have done ladies first but anyway we're nothing if not unorthodox here on the tennis podcast so a very intriguing week in stuttgart last week and in fact a very intriguing year so far few weeks to date on the ladies on the women's tour I think let's address Maria Sharapova first we we've addressed a potential crisis for Rafael Nadal I mean I know they're completely different scenarios however she lost to Kerber in three sets uh, in Stuttgart she's lost her number two ranking now um, she could regain it before Paris but she has lost her number two ranking um, losses to Panetta and Gavrilova in Indian Wells in Miami what's going on David? I think mainly she's been a little bit injured, um, which I think contributed to her losses uh, in the States. She 
she's never done that well in Miami. She's certainly never won the tournament. And then, of course, she's had a few weeks without playing. I think she, she looked rusty to me the other day. And let's not forget, she didn't actually lose to the eventual champion in Angelique Kerber. I, I saw that match. She, she could have won it, probably should have won it. Um, but take nothing away from Kerber. She played really well. She was, she was Kerber plus 10% in front of that home crowd, I thought. She, and, and look, look what she did. She went on and beat some really tough players, including Wozniacki in the final from 5-3 down when it's 7-5. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. Even third. So I'm not worried in the slightest about Maria Sharapova. Whereas with Nadal, if you're talking about that last 2%, I do, I do have a question mark over whether it's still there and whether he's actually going to bring it out at the French Open or not. I don't have that concern about Sharapova. It's way too early. There's no evidence that has happened that concerns me at all. OK, well, that's Sharapova dealt with then. What easy, easy peasy. I think I agree, really, David. I'd hate to disagree with you. But a perhaps a less easy subject to deal with is Jeannie Bouchard, um, she is undoubtedly in what the Americans so delightfully call a sophomore slump, isn't she? How, in fact, Chris Clary, our esteemed colleague, in fact, there should be a word sort of more than esteemed, shouldn't there? Hero. <laughs> hero. Uh, our hero, Chris Clary, has actually called it a sophomore freefall, which is pretty extreme sounding. Um, there's so many things to talk about. There's the fact that her tennis looks highly erratic. Um, she is misfiring. In fact, I read one account of her displays in um, in the Fed Cup against Romania describing her as a malfunctioning robot, which is harsh, absolutely harsh. Not my words, but uh, there, there was something quite resounding in that description. of It just looked like she was spraying things left, right and centre with no real calculation of 
of, of where they were going. Uh, there's also Handshake Gate to address, isn't there? She, at the uh, draw ceremony for the, that Fed Cup, interestingly, she, she only signed up to play the Fed Cup at the very last minute, didn't she? Um, the Canadian Fed Cup captain had left a space open for her, hoping that she would agree to play, and she did, but not until um, a couple of days before having lost early at her previous tournament. And then she turns up, and she's at the draw ceremony, and uh, she's standing there, cameras on her, uh, journalists all present and correct, and uh, Alexandra Dulguru extends her hand out in a polite gesture, a polite uniform gesture, and Eugenie Bouchard refuses to shake her hand, which is, whichever way you look at it, David, a pretty bold move, I think. Afterwards, she was asked about it, and she said, it's nothing personal towards her. I just don't believe in wishing my opponent good luck before the match. After we play, I will shake her hand no matter what happens. Now, my issue with that statement is there's nothing about a handshake which involves wishing somebody luck at all. A handshake is just a polite, basically meaningless gesture. There's nothing in it that suggests luck at all. I think she's misunderstood the meaning of a handshake there. I think I'm, I'm deducing from the expression on your face, David, that you see this differently, though. Well, first of all, define handshakes. Define what they're meant to mean. Who says that there's no luck meant to be imparted by a handshake? Come on, David. It's that, I mean, it's, it's, it's just one of those things that you do. Yes, it's arbitrary, but it is ultimately meaningless. It's just a pleasantry. It's a pleasantry that... I mean, OK, elaborate further, David. <laughs> well, look, isn't it in the eye of the beholder? In her view, if I shake your hand, I feel I'm wishing you good luck. That's what she's basically saying. Now, who is anybody to say that that is not how she feels and if she feels uncomfortable with that why shouldn't she do what she wants to do and not shake the hand now I, I, I'm, I'm well aware that most people would think that's a bit petty isn't it it's a bit you know come on that's about the the traditions of the game and and straightforward etiquette and good manners but first of all I think do you know what? It's quite refreshing to find somebody who doesn't just do what everybody says you're supposed to do. Secondly, I think it's refreshing that you have a player who's not afraid to have a bit of a row and a bit of a bit of aggro and be the the centre of some some criticism and not necessarily doing what what all the goody two shoes do when they're when they're in these positions. And regardless of what your personal opinion is, and and I should say my opinion is that. You should shake hands because I, I, I believe in good manners. Personally, I think it is, a, it is a, an indication of good manners. But that doesn't mean she has to do it. I, just because I would do that doesn't mean I think she has to do it. She doesn't have to do it. But equally, we're allowed to make judgments about her on the basis of her not doing it. But I like difference. I like people to be different to me. I don't want everybody to be the same as me. Therefore, I'm not going to necessarily judge them because they're different to how I would do it. And... For goodness sake, we've had enough coziness in tennis, don't we? Mm, yeah, I mean, that is, a, that is an argument that's levelled at tennis these days. You know, people look back at the John McEnroe era of, you know, sledging sledging at the, at the net when you cross over for the change of ends and think, oh, God, wouldn't it be great if there was a bit more of that? But people lamented that at the time, didn't they? Anyway, 
read Jeannie Bouchard. The fact is the gesture, do you think the gesture looks worse in the light of the fact that she went on to lose to Alexandra Dolgaru? No, no, I think it, I think it, everybody made up their minds very quickly about it. I think, I think it makes, I think it's the equivalent of the, the football team manager who hears something the opposition manager has said about his team and sticks up those words on the dressing room wall to inspire his own team to shove those words down his, the, the opponent's throat. And like I, boring Chelsea, for example. Yes, and boring Chelsea and boring Arsenal. That's the conversation of the day after yesterday's nil-nil epic uh, at the Emirates. Uh, but That's an hour and a half of my life I'm never getting back. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Uh, not, not like watching Reading and the Albion, is it? Uh, but the... It's it clearly motivated the Romanian team even more. I mean, look, they did a a, a mock a mocking of Bouchard in their celebration straight afterwards, with Dolgaru going up to the team, extending her hand, and they all threw their hands into the air and said, "Oh no, you know, we don't shake hands <laughs> with the, with you," um, which I thought was great, really funny, and good on them for doing it. But don't we just need to lighten up a bit? And, and celebrate difference and let this woman be who she wants to be, for goodness sake. Criticise her, is, is, criticising her, what she's done and saying, I wouldn't do it, is fine. But at some point, I especially, and particularly us in the media, who are always banging on about how it's a little anodyne sometimes and, and um, wishing there was some aggro or, you know, and some personality. Here's a woman who's prepared to, to be whoever she actually is and not just put on some face. Fair enough, David. However, who she actually is at the moment is somebody who's not winning tennis matches and win- and not winning tennis matches in sort of not the right way. It, it, the, the, the signs are worrying, I think. What's your assessment of that? What's your assessment of what's going on? Do you think it's the very simple explanation if she's struggling with her new level of success, the fact she's now got a target on her back, the fact she's got ranking points to defend, or do you think it's something more fundamental than that? There's been criticism, or perhaps not criticism, but certainly explanations for her form have been... It's been implied that possibly her the distractions of everything she's had off the court she's, have played a part. She certainly had an attitude of embracing everything that's come her way off the court and embracing um, all the deals and the profile. And she's even referred to herself as a brand, which, you know, it's undeniable that the superstars of tennis are a brand. I'm not suggesting that she's wrong in that assessment, but to actually openly make that reference, you know, I don't think you'd ever hear Roger Federer openly referring to himself as a brand his agent might in negotiations but you might not hear him say that himself so how how big a factor is each of these each of these things is it purely the psychological is it something to do with the distractions off the court or is it is she just having a bad patch as players do I I think she is I think she is having a slump and I do think some of those things are factors that you mentioned I think the first time I saw vulnerability in Eugenie Bouchard was that match was it in Montreal or Toronto last year I can't remember which which it was last year when in front of a baying crowd a massive crowd just adoring her every move and desperate to get behind her I think she lost the first set six love in her first match and she in the on-court coaching, the much maligned on-court coaching that we 
actually talked about last last time when we were together and, and how we see some of the virtues in it and this is a great example of it. There she was on the side of the court with, with her coach saying, I just, you know, I just can't handle this. This is too much for me. Um, I just can't seem to get going, get it going in front of... And it was clear the occasion was, was too much for her. So I think that she's actually probably more sensitive than than she lets on i mean she's a human being for a start you know unless there's only a handful of of players that are such competitors that they can block virtually everything out i think she wants to be one of those she wants to be iron and maybe she's not quite that strong and tough and i think at the moment it's a learning process for her and yes she's embraced it yes she's got good deals fair enough i have no problem with that at all and you know yeah maybe she's losing a few matches because the whole but i think the main expectations come from within she has such drive she has such ambition she's not content and i actually think that that can sometimes be a problem for a player just the desperation to get better quickly leads to stress and leads to anxiety on the tennis court and I think the problem is she she doesn't have the most languid of styles and I think when things do go wrong it's quite she she doesn't seem to want to compromise she just keeps wanting to stand on the baseline half volley shots hit them for winners and dominate and I think sometimes you can't do that Absolutely. I, I agree. Stop saying things that I agree with, David. Perhaps, In fact, the next item on our agenda, I doubt we're going to disagree either, because I think we, we must mention Petra Kvitova. She, um, she published a very intriguing, honest, um, emotion-evoking um, column in, on the BBC Sport website last week, um, admitting that she's, she's taken a month off from tennis because she was struggling with exhaustion um, I, I think a little bit more than exhaustion actually she was struggling emotionally um, with the demands and the rigour of, uh, of the tour um, she's, she came back in Stuttgart last week um, lost early uh, it's obviously going to take her a little while to, to get back but um, I, I applaud her, her honesty in, um, in being so open about the decision that she made and, and so early on in the season as well um, I think there's probably a lot of players that have done that but, but not said that's the reason that they're, they're choosing to take some time away from the tour. Um, so I think it's only a positive thing that that sort of, that sort of topic is opened up and, and becomes less of a taboo. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely right. And um, I don't know Petra Kvitova at all, so I, I don't want to um, speculate as to exactly what she's been going through other than to say, if you don't feel up for it, if, if, it's just, if it's just not happening for you, if you feel like you would rather not be playing tennis, some weeks I think it's better to just not play and to just look after yourself. Um, and I think that that applies in every walk of life. Sometimes you can't just keep pressing the accelerator and expecting yourself to be able to go forwards because sometimes you're going you're gonna to just malfunction. And um, it's best not to mess around too much with exhaustion because it can it can lead to some dark places and uh good for her that that she's just faced up to it and thought you know i'm not i'm not feeling quite right at the moment whether physically emotionally or whatever it may be and best to have a have a break from it and and all i can say is she i mean she seems like a, a really decent person to me and wish her all the best 
And another development on the uh, WTA tour this week is the demise of the relationship between Martina Navratilova and Agnieszka Radvanska. It seems that that was predominantly Martina's decision and she's put it down to scheduling. She, she's In the statement she says she didn't realise the commitment that it would require um, in terms of time to be fully devoted and to give everything she needed to to that role. However, it's undeniable that uh, Radvanska's ranking has dropped, I think, to nine. She's at nine now. I think she was at number five uh, when their relationship started. It hasn't worked, has it? Yes, it was only five months, but it hasn't quite worked. Certainly, there are no results to show for the work that they've put in. I do think it's possible. I mean, I, I commentated on the match she lost last week in, uh, in Stuttgart on BT Sport, and, and you know, she... I've, I've commentated on a few matches of, this, of hers this year. She has not looked right at all. She's not looked as though she's really been clear of mind and, and, and certainly confidence has been lacking. I do feel as though there's every chance that the, the nuggets that have been passed on by Martina Navratilova may bear fruit at some point. And you may find that she gets on the grass and suddenly things she's been told about by Martina, nine-time Wimbledon champion, may suddenly click when she's there. Now, clearly, whatever the dynamics of that relationship have been, they've not been sufficient to sustain it beyond now, and they've, they've, they've decided to, to part ways, which I'm not that surprised about given this... I know how much Martina does in the world outside of, of coaching Radvanska um, and she will be she'll be commentating with us on BT Sport uh, next week in Madrid and in Rome and I mean it, you know when you listen to her I, I, I've not found a, a more insightful person in tennis to talk about the game with personally she's a cracky I'd rather just keep my thoughts to myself and just listen and I imagine that's what Ravanska wants to do, wanted to do as well, which is why they, they struck up the, uh, the alliance they did. So I, I, I suspect it may still bear some dividends, even though Martina's not there anymore. But it's a shame, in a way, that it hasn't led to a longer-term relationship because, like I said, I think Martina has got so much to give. Um, but... Radvanska did look lost last week. There's no question about it. Do you think Martina might look for somebody else to give it to? I mean, she was certainly, before she made that connection with Radvanska, it certainly seemed like she was really keen to find somebody to coach. She was even linked with the Andy Murray job at some stage. How much, um, how much substance there was behind those rumours, I don't know. But it certainly seemed clear that she was on the lookout for a coaching gig. Do you think she will now be keeping her ears to the ground for another potential link up i don't know i don't know uh, well enough to, to 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 have a really educated guess at it i mean it's certainly something that i'd like to ask her um i, I think the temptation is to to look at players like stefan edberg and see what he's done with federer on what appears to be a part-time basis or a consultancy basis and think that that can be done and, I'm, and perhaps it's just not the case with everybody. I mean, Andy Murray's talked about how he feels he needs somebody with him all the time, or, or most of the time. He doesn't want just somebody turning up at the big events. He wants to have that, that more permanent coach. And in fact, with the, the news that Amelie Moresmo is expecting a child and is going to eventually take some time out of, of, of coaching him, the, the reports today from Munich, uh, I read a piece written by Simon Cambers in The Telegraph this morning, 
where it looks as though Jonas Bjorkman, if all goes well around the grass court season, he's going to do certainly the full-time stint throughout the summer, it would appear, and be a lot more on the scene. Um, and I think that that's what certain players need, others less so. I mean, don't forget Roger Federer's very best results came when he had no coach, but that's Roger Federer. Roger Federer in a class of his own. Um, now, a couple of matters of other business to clear up before uh, before we wrap this podcast up. First of all, it has been announced that the forthcoming, hugely anticipated Davis Cup World Group tie between Great Britain and France will be held on the grass courts of the Queen's Club. How exciting is that, David? Yeah, it is exciting. I mean, it's it's uh, 25 years since the last time, and that was a pretty ignominious uh, occasion. Uh, a, a 0-5 defeat by France, oh, would you believe it? And and it's France who uh, Britain will be playing um, in July. So uh, on the grass at Queen's, the stands will stay up from the tournaments, the Aegon Championships, and uh, four weeks later they'll be they'll be playing Davis Cup tennis there. So. I mean, I think it's great. You know, it's fantastic to have that occasion come into a club that we know so well and love so much. And um, I think it could be a really close tie. Uh, certainly Britain have the outstanding player, but France have such depth. And should there be any doubt about how much the French care about that tie? I should just mention that while I was in Monte Carlo last week, uh, Monfils obviously had a run to the semi-finals there and played brilliantly. And I actually had to interview him following, I can't remember specifically, but it might even have been his win over Roger Federer that week. And I had to ask him a couple of questions at the end of the press conference because I was the only person wanting to speak to him in English. And uh, he interrupted me halfway through and said, are you English? And I said... Yes, sort of slightly annoyed at how obvious it was clearly that I was English. And he said, can you tell me where the Davis Cup tie is going to be played? And I said, no, Gail, I can't. I, I know nothing more than you. I guarantee you have more information than I do. But he, he really wanted to know. He wanted that inside track on, uh, on where it was going to be played. So um, I think that tie is going to be a huge occasion for tennis in both countries, particularly here and I think uh, I don't think the French are going to be uncomfortable on the grass that's what makes it so intriguing Andy Murray was so keen to say yes we want this tie on the grass because it's not as if that's somewhere where the French feel uncomfortable is it well I disagree with you I mean where else would you put it if you're Britain what else would you put it on no I agree I think I think it's the right decision however Songer and Gasquet on the grass if that is who goes into the singles ties I've, I've no idea as you say there's so much depth that you could pick from a quite a large handful of players but Songer and Gasquet might probably put grass as their favourite surfaces Songer would yeah Songer would I'm not sure whether Gasquet would but either way I'd take Andy Murray against either one of them bold bold from David okay finally my last item is something you threw out on Twitter this week, um, picking up on the excitement there is surrounding this ever-growing cluster of young players on the ATP Tour. It seems that a new name gets added to that pool of youngsters that really that really is exciting us people that get paid to talk about tennis. Um, and you asked the listening community for the 2020, so five and a half years from now, the 2020 year-end rankings for Nick Kyrgios, Kokonakis, Kozlov, Rublev, Zverev, Chorich, 
Chung and Tiafo. And uh, one dedicated tennis podcast follower came back to us and answered our question. So I'm going to tell you what at tennis guy 015 had to say, and you're going to tell me whether you think he's right. Read these end of year rankings. So he thinks Rublev will be at number three. Yeah, I could see that. There or thereabouts. I saw him play for the first time in uh, Barcelona last week. Clay court against the seasoned clay quarter and Fernando Verasco, and he went toe to toe with him. Actually, won the match. I thought it was, he was fantastic. I think he'll be really good on hard courts and indoors as well. Um, just a good, solid player who ha- sees the ball beautifully. I could definitely see that. Needs to sort his hair out, doesn't he? Well. I quite liked it actually I think I might get one of those myself it was it was retro that's for sure uh, Zverev he says 18 Zverev has dominated the junior circuit for the last couple of years um, certainly looks the part but he's saying 18 for Zverev I haven't seen enough of Zverev to, to confidently predict but I would have thought he'd be higher than that he, he looks a better player than 18 in the world to me now he says Chorich at number one. In five years' time, Borna Chorich will be world number one. I think he'll be in the top five. I don't think he'll necessarily be number one. He could be. Um, and there are, I know what people think there are the similarities to Djokovic in certain ways. I actually think in some ways there are not, he's not unlike Nadal in some ways, even though he's right-handed. But I, I wouldn't confidently predict number one. Well, how about Kyrgios at number two then? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think he, could, he he's going to be in the top 10 if he's fully fit, no question. But I think there's that big question mark over how fit he'll stay. If he's fully fit, I think he'll be in the top 10 and he'll have won a Grand Slam if he's fully fit. Now, next up is the one that I disagree with most wholeheartedly. Because um, generally, I think at tennis guy 015 has done done a pretty good job here, but Kokonakis at 34, I don't agree there. Unless he's been suffering from injury for, for the preceding year or something, I see Kokonakis as far higher than that, all being well. Yeah, me too. No question about it. I, I think Kokonakis is possibly the one I'm most excited about out of all of them. Um, and he has no obvious weakness I don't think he's going to get necessarily really badly injured easily either Um, of all of them he's the one I'm most excited about I'd put him at number one I think I might agree with you I'll tell you what in Delray Beach earlier this year where Kokonakis was playing he qualified and uh, played main draw there and Mark Philippoussis was out there for a Champions Tour event and Mark Philippoussis wanted to go in fact Mark Philippoussis was bless him a bit annoying because I was trying to get him to do things I was trying to get him to do interviews with me and he was making me uh, design his schedule around Tanasi's matches because he didn't want to miss a moment of watching him play and he wanted it, it's a, he's obviously not going to be a full-time coach or anything but he really was interested in his progress and he said he indicated that he is the real deal Kokonakis which which was exciting uh, next up Chung number eight I haven't seen Chung play so I'm leaving this to you David I've seen him once and uh looking at his results some of the wins he's had are really notable you think crikey that's a good player for him to be beating at the age years and the experience he's had um, I know that Brad Gilbert saw him uh, and he mentioned him in fact he, he brought him to our attention on our tennis podcast a, a couple of months ago when you interviewed him he, he also said on Twitter recently that 
he he slightly worries about Chung's forehand and the the the, the way he hits it. He thinks there's a, a couple of kinks in that forehand that may get exposed. And when I saw him, that you know, from a layperson's point of view, I wondered the same. And then I was interested to see what what Brad had said. But you know, he's a natural mover. He's a, he's a very exciting player. I couldn't guess at the ranking, to be honest with you. Not not with any confidence. And Tiafo at 27. Who I've only seen practice, to be honest with you, uh, on, on the Davis Cup court. So, again, it's difficult to say with confidence. But when you do look at the results that he's having, he's having good challenger results. And, and it's that transition, isn't it, between the junior and the senior game. I mean, all I can say is it would be fantastic if you did get good American names coming through just to add a bit of spice to it all. Well, the one that uh, Tennis Guy 015 has not predicted uh, in that list is Stefan Kozlov. Where do you see him being end of year 2020? Um, I don't know. I well, this is your question, yeah. David. You've got to know well, the answer. I want everybody else to tell me because I don't know. Uh, no, I think... Top 10? Top 20. I, I, I think the question mark is he's not that big. He, not that you have to be. He's still only about nine years old, though. There could be some growing left in him. Yeah, that's true. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll stay with top 20 because I think I'm on safer ground. OK, there we go. Next, firmly on the line in this week's tennis podcast, which is unheard of. I think we're getting bolder, David, aren't we? Um, it has been an absolute pleasure to be joined by you once more in... Well, we're not going to say the name of the coffee shop, are we? Because they, they're not going to get promotion from us unless they want to sponsor the podcast. But in the Putney Exchange Shopping Centre, it's been an absolute pleasure, David. We'll catch you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.